Please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, through chapter 7, verse 1. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a fire to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every different defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness and completion in the fear of God. This is God's word. Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to keep them open to 2 Corinthians 6 as we open our time together there this morning in prayer. God, we pray that you would be at work in our midst this morning, that we would hear these words from 2 Corinthians 6, that they would sink down deeply into our hearts, that by your Spirit you would bring them to bear on our lives, and that we would be the holy people that you call us to be. We pray these things with the hope and expectation because we know that you love us. We know that you are at work for our good. We have seen it on the cross and at the empty tomb. And so we invite you to continue that good work this morning as we look at these words together. And we do so in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, about 30 years after Paul's death and 40 years after he wrote 2 Corinthians, another letter was written to the church there. That letter, which is now known by the title First Clement, is one of the oldest documents from church history which has been recovered so far, and it has helped us to understand what was happening in the church at the end of the first century, not long after the deaths of the apostles and most of the first generation of Christians. And in Corinth, the news was not good. First Clement was written as a letter of stern rebuke by a bishop in Rome who had gotten word of a rebellion in the Corinthian church. Factions and division in that church had been a problem from day one, and false teachers had compromised its faithfulness to Christ. These are two issues that Paul spent considerable time addressing in his letters to them 40 years earlier. The city's history and its culture made it a hard place for a church to survive. It was home to several major temple structures It strengthened its economic and political position by currying favor favor with Rome as a hub of the imperial cult, which worshipped the emperor as a god. So the people of that city had a financial and social incentive when it came to attending and participating in the pagan religious traditions that took place in that city throughout the year. 
As we've discussed already in our study of the book of 2 Corinthians, it was a city obsessed with social standing and material wealth and politics. So the Corinthian Christians were surrounded by this culture and were constantly faced with the risk that the culture of the city of Corinth would shape the culture of Christianity within that city. It was the persistent, looming threat for the church in Corinth. And now, 30 years after Paul's death, the dam is finally broken, and the church in Corinth is on the brink of abandoning Christ completely. The faithful elders in the church were, who were committed to the gospel were overthrown, removed from their offices, and replaced by others who practiced the imperial cult, watered down the gospel, and who allowed false teaching to be promoted within the congregation. And afterward, word spread about what had happened. So believers in Rome who were burdened by these events sent a letter to Corinth, which condemned what they referred to as detestable and unholy sedition, so alien and strange to the elect of God in which a few headstrong and self-willed persons have kindled to such a pitch of madness that your name, once revered and renowned and lovely in the sight of all men, hath been greatly reviled. It is a disaster, and it is exactly what Paul feared would happen one day. And that background helps us understand what he wrote in the passage that we're looking at this morning. Paul has spent the last five and a half chapters of the book of 2 Corinthians defending his ministry and responding to attacks and accusations that have been made about him, defending himself and vindicating his ministry there. Not because he feels some compulsion to be respected or admired or listened to, but because he cannot sit idly by while the gospel is silenced or corrupted. So he spent lots of time in this letter reminding the Corinthians of his commitment to God and to them, and we we reached the crescendo of his case in the passage that we looked at last week when he recounted all the ways that he has suffered for their sake and for the gospel's sake. He said, in part, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. He lists the ways that he has suffered as a messenger of the gospel to commend himself to them, to prove to them that he is honest when he says he loves Christ and that he loves them, enough that he has been willing to shed his blood for them. It's clear reading that passage that Paul is not bragging, but illustrating how deep his love for these people really goes. And afterward, after he's listed the ways in which he suffered for their sake and for the sake of the gospel, he asks them to widen their hearts toward him. He goes through all of this process, listing all the ways that he suffered, commending himself to these people, defending his ministry, because he is about to confront their sin. In effect, he's saying, you can see that I love you, that I care more about you than I do about my own safety or my reputation or my well-being, so please, please listen to what I'm about to say. My love for you is proven, so hear what I am about to say. There's a lesson to be learned in this example. He has to prove to them that he loves them so that they'll hear him when he says what they do not want to hear. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, he says in verse 14. 
It is a direct order. And he uses an agricultural illustration to make his point, one that would probably have been familiar to everyone in the first century, but which perhaps is pretty foreign to most of us who've never run a farm before, or maybe even been on a farm before. A yoke was a device used to harness multiple draft animals together, like oxen or mules, so that they could pull something heavy, like a plow. It was common sense that the two animals who were yoked together would need to be the same kind of animal and roughly the same size. If you harnessed a giant ox and a little donkey together, you'd have a hard time getting any work done. Instead of neat, tidy rows in your field, you'd probably end up with a mess on your hands if you got anywhere at all. A modern version of this illustration might be something like putting monster truck tires on one side of your car so that you were driving around like this. You would have a hard time getting anywhere at all. And even if you did manage to get rolling, you would have a really hard time keeping your car on the road. That's the image that Paul paints in these Corinthian minds. They must not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Like an ox and a donkey, Christians and non-Christians are of two different types, essentially different. Not that one is better or worse, not that one is smarter or more foolish, not that one is more valuable or less valuable. That is not Paul's point. But that they work differently, toward different ends, for different reasons, and with different driving impulses. So harnessing them together will make the Christians work harder, if not impossible, to accomplish. Most of the time, this verse is quoted in reference to marriage and the point that a Christian should not marry a non-Christian. And while that is a fair inference to draw from this verse, Paul is not talking about marriage in this passage. Paul is telling these Corinthian, Corinthian Christians not to ally themselves in relationships, professional, personal, or social, with unbelievers in a way that would make it hard for the church to do its work, sowing the seeds of the gospel, or to move toward its goal of glorifying Christ essentially to invite the culture of Corinth to dictate the direction and the culture of the church. To be clear, Paul is not saying that Christians should cut all ties with the unbelieving world. Some have read these words here in 2 Corinthians 6.14 and concluded that the world is evil, that secular culture is a corrupting force, and therefore the only option is to withdraw and live in a monastery, cut off and isolated, unencumbered by the threat that they sense from the outside world. But that is not what Paul is saying here. In fact, it couldn't be further from his core driving motivation in life to build relationships with unbelievers, to speak the gospel into their lives, not from a safe distance, but up close, as a friend and as a neighbor. To be clear, Paul is also not saying that Christians who are married to non-Christians should leave their spouse and get divorced. In fact, he teaches in 1 Corinthians that Christians in that situation should do everything they can to remain married. Here, Paul is talking about how the believers in Corinth are letting the pagan culture of the city around them shape the ethos of the church there, and he is commanding them to stop. He uses the word yoked, which isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament. That word is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. In fact, it's not used in this metaphorical sense in any other ancient Greek writings that have been discovered. Paul is evidently the very first writer 
to use this word in a metaphorical sense. So there aren't any other references that we can turn to for insight about what he's getting at here. But he does further develop his point with five rhetorical questions in the lines that follow. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Each of these questions assumes not just a negative answer, but a strong one because of the ridiculousness of the premise that they, that they each suggest. Where can light and darkness occupy the same space? It's such a silly concept that even a child understands that the answer is nowhere. It, it is impossible. Or Christ with Belial, which is a name for Satan, which was common among Jews in the first century. It's the only place in the New Testament that name for Satan shows up, but it, was, it, it is common from Jewish writings from around this time. Again, Paul's point is that it is laughable that Jesus and Satan are of one accord, that they have the same objectives or shared concerns. The fact that Paul asks five of these rhetorical questions helps us understand the emphasis that he's putting on the point that he's making, which is revealed most clearly with his last question, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? This is where he gets to the heart of the matter. The Corinthian Christians have allowed idolatry to creep into their fellowship. And so Paul's instruction to not be yoked with unbelievers suggests that they have already put themselves in a position where the culture of the city, the pagan religious practices, and the political and economic incentives to be gained from participating in them, the social pressure that surrounds them have begun to shape the character and the doctrine of this church. They've bound themselves to something which is pulling them off course and out of alignment with Christ. So there's something seriously wrong. I'm struck by the fact that Paul does not come in guns blazing here. He isn't afraid of doing that, of telling people how foolish they're being for the, the, the choices that they're making and the ways that they're abandoning the gospel. He's even done that with the Corinthians themselves. 1 Corinthians is full of some pretty heated comments from Paul toward the things that they're doing, but here he does not do that. Instead, he encourages the Corinthians to consider how God has been at work among them, and then to consider how that ought to shape their lives and the character of their church. For we are the, living temp the temple of the living God, he says. Grammatically, in that verse, Paul is emphasizing the word we in the sentence. He fronts it. He puts it at the very beginning of the sentence, which is a way of giving a little emphasis to a Greek sentence. Paul isn't lording over these people, giving them, giving them these instructions from some pedestal. He is identifying with them, co-recipients of God's grace. We are the temple, the dwelling place of God, the place where the world now encounters the glory and the grace of God as the Spirit of God indwells His people. It is the fulfillment of Jesus' own promise and something that New Testament authors wrote about often, that God no longer dwells in a building, but in a people. It is a work of His grace, His love, and His mercy toward people who are worthy of only destruction and wrath. And it is knowing that grace that ought to shape the lives of Christians and the character of the churches that they labor alongside. Paul makes this point by quoting at length from the Old Testament in verses 16 through 18. What's interesting about this quote 
is that it is not from a single source in the Old Testament. Instead, what Paul has done is combine passages from a range of Old Testament sources, including Leviticus 26, Isaiah 52, Ezekiel 20, Exodus 29, Isaiah 43, and Jeremiah 31. He combines them all into one cohesive quote under the heading, as God said. As a brief aside, I think that there are several things I think we can learn from Paul's method of quotation here. First, it's important to note that Paul considers the Old Testament to be the Word of God, which is mediated through human authors. He says, as God said. So it makes sense to draw from multiple sources because he recognizes that every book of Scripture has one ultimate source. Secondly, he recognizes the cohesiveness of Scripture. Paul treats the Old Testament in such a way that reveals that though it was produced over almost 1,500 years in different countries by a couple, different, a couple dozen authors in several different genres and styles, it is one message and that it tells one story. Third, Paul recognizes the consistency of God's character. Sometimes people will say that it seems like the God that we read about in the Old Testament is one of wrath and anger, while the God we read about in the New Testament is one of gentleness and grace and love. That is not the way that Paul sees things. In fact, no, Testament, no New Testament author does. There's literally no chapter of any New Testament book that does not either directly quote from or directly allude to the writings of the Old Testament. Paul did not see a change in God's character. What he saw was the fulfillment of all of God's promises to redeem for himself a people to be the beacon of his light and glory and grace in the world that had turned away from him, to be a temple where his spirit would dwell. As God has said, we read, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be to, and you shall be to me as sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. These are God's promises, gathered from all over the Old Testament, that He will be faithful, that He will be near, that He will be as a father to His people, He says He will dwell among them, literally be with them like we are together right now. Under the old covenant, that meant the physical temple, the the building built from stone. But Paul sees that physical temple as a promise of something even greater that God would do, which has now been fulfilled in the new covenant, in which God is even nearer to His people, walking among them, as we read in verse 16. Language that calls to mind the Garden of Eden, where God walked with Adam and Eve before their fall into sin, where there was no fear, no shame, no guilt, no death, and no barrier between humanity and the glory of God that they were called and created to treasure. It's a promise of restoration, and it has been kept in Christ. Therefore, Paul quotes, go out from their midst and be separate from them. This is a line that Paul draws from Isaiah 52, written about a dark time, the the darkest time in the history of the people of Israel. They had been conquered by Babylon, and many of the people hauled away into captivity to live among the Babylonians and coerced there to practice Babylonian religious traditions. But God assured them that He would bring them out 
and that he would restore them. So he says to them in Isaiah 52, 11, depart, depart, go out from there and touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, which is to say Babylon, and purify yourselves. It makes sense to me that Paul would include this verse here because of the way that it mirrors the situation in Corinth in the first century. Both of these passages refer to a people living in the midst of a city and a society that does not know God. Both passages appreciate the pressure and the difficulty of such circumstances and instruct the people of God living in those circumstances to not defile themselves by participating in the ungodly practices that take place all around them. Like the Israelites in Babylon, the Corinthians are surrounded on all sides by a city and a culture that not only does not know God, but are committed to worshiping idols and upholding traditions that violate God's law and His character. And the pressures for these Corinthian Christians, just like for those in Babylonian exile, to be carried along in that cultural current is immense. What seems to be happening in Corinth is that the people have begun to believe that someone can be a Christian and also dabble in these cult rituals and feasts that take place in the city. They justify doing things that are contrary to God's instruction because refusal might cost them political opportunities or social standing or their livelihood. And as they've done so, they have yoked themselves to unbelievers that have now made it impossible for them to honor Christ with their lives. Not by doing anything dramatic. They didn't bring a golden statue into, uh, of the emperor into their sanctuary. They didn't bring idols into their church gatherings. But 40 years later, they would. So God says to His people in exile, touch no unclean thing. And to His people in Corinth, do not be yoked with unbelievers and be separate from them. Again, Paul's point is not complete withdrawal from Corinth, but caution about how these Christians live in it. He says, touch nothing unclean, not touch nothing at all. There are parts of the city, parts of the culture of Corinth that Christians there can joyfully engage in as part of their commitment to Christ, not in spite of their commitment to Christ. Culture as a whole is not something that Scripture condemns. Paul regularly appeals to cultural values and traditions as avenues to proclaim the gospel. He understood that because people are made in God's image, they cannot help but reflect His glory in the things that they create. So there are things to celebrate and enjoy that come from outside the church, things that can help Christians see and rejoice in God's glory and grace even more. And that is the goal for these Christians in Corinth, that they live in their city, touching no unclean thing, as neighbors and friends with unbelievers, beacons of light in a dark place, living with discernment about what is acceptable and what is not. Because God has said, then I will welcome you, and will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me. What temptation could Corinth's idols offer that could rival or overwhelm this promise? They may claim to provide economic prosperity, bountiful harvest, political advantage, or social standing, but God says to His people, you will be my children, my sons and daughters, heirs of my glory and recipients of my blessing and honor forever. Even the emperor, arrayed in all of his splendor and pride, does not make assurances like that. 
And that is the basis for Paul's whole case here, which he makes in chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have all these promises, he says, let us cleanse ourselves of every defilement of the body and spirit, which is to say, every single part of our lives, everything we have and everything we can control, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. All the instructions that Paul has given to the Corinthians are not their way to earn their way into his good graces. God did not say, do this, and then I will draw near to you, dwell with you, and call you my sons and daughters. He made these promises with the Corinthians in mind long before the church in Corinth was founded or before any church anywhere was founded. We often think about this in a backward way inverted from what we're seeing here in 2 Corinthians, that in order for God to love and bless us, we must cleanse ourselves. We must behave ourselves and prove our devotion to Him. Then He will bless us and show us His kindness and affection. That's the way that the temples in Corinth operated. The gods in those temples demanded offerings and devotions and submission in exchange for their favor. That's the way the relationship with the emperor worked too. It is the way we naturally think about what it would mean to relate to someone divine. But the God of the Bible says, I loved you before you knew me. I loved you before you turned toward me. Before you ever had the inkling of a notion of what it might mean to be mine, I loved you. I made promises to you before you had ears to hear them. I loved you before the idea of holiness ever crossed your mind, and I loved you so much that I sent my Son to give His blood as an atoning sacrifice for your sin, to exchange His life for yours, so that you might be counted righteous despite your unrighteousness, so that you could become my son or my daughter, members of my household, and citizens of my kingdom. And I've done this before you ever looked up to seek me out, because I loved you before you loved me. Paul is not telling the Christians in Corinth to earn God's favor and his affection. He is reminding them that God's favor and affection, his love for them, has already been poured out, that his promises have been made and kept. And because that is true, his people now live in joyous response to his kindness rather than a fearful attempt to earn it. Paul's instructions to the Corinthians here in this passage are to honor God and avoid sin, not because otherwise he will be angry with them, but because he has already loved them and sacrificed for them and saved them and called them his own sons and daughters. That is what he means when he says that they must cleanse themselves now of every defilement and all the ungodly things that are currently being permitted in their midst, and even participating in the sinful practices that they're participating in, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. There is no such thing, hear this, there is no such thing as a Christian who does not grieve over sin, whose heart is not broken over persistent sin, and who does not seek by the indwelling Spirit of God to overcome it. A Christian who is more thrilled by what might be gained from participation in sin than with Christ is not actually a Christian at all. 
because they have not tasted the satisfying grace and supreme holiness of God that makes everything else bitter by comparison. For the Corinthians living in the first century, that meant submission to and participation in cultural traditions that made a mockery of God, dishonored His Son, and neglected the gospel, all for the sake of popularity and prosperity or politics. So, Paul says, do not be yoked with them. Do not bind yourselves to anything that will cause your grip on the gospel to loosen or which will draw your eyes from Christ. Live in your city, but do not be conformed to it. Love your city, love your neighbors, and serve them both. Be people that your unbelieving neighbors are glad to have next door, but do not put yourselves in a position that would draw your eyes from Christ or from His glory or from His love for you. Instead, know your role as the temple of the living God, the dwelling place of God's Spirit, where the world will now see His good works, His kindness, and His utter commitment to uphold His righteousness and holiness. This is not what the people in Corinth wanted to hear, because obedience to this passage and what is being taught here will cost them socially and politically and economically. But Paul loves these people. He loves them enough to endure abuse and accusation, as we've seen already. And he loves them enough to tell them that they cannot live with one foot in the church and another foot in a pagan temple, because to do so is to lose Christ and the gospel. With some parts of Scripture, there is sometimes a bit of a larger gap between what is being taught and how it applies or makes a difference today thousands of years later. We look for principles, for the way that God has revealed His character, or for timeless truths that are as relevant today as ever. We understand passages of Scripture in their original context, recognizing that they were written by a particular person to a particular audience at a particular moment in history, and we are best equipped to grasp the way that a particular passage reveals the gospel when we read them that way. But this passage, at the end of 2 Corinthians 6, seems like it may as well have just been written directly to us. It seems like there's like no gap between us and what's going on here. We don't have to analyze very hard or think very deeply to recognize its relevance for us. We live in a world, and more specifically in a culture, that is in many ways like the Corinthian context. Though there aren't temples to pagan gods on every corner, or an imperial cult which requires us to revere someone who has declared himself a god, our circumstances aren't exactly the same, but surely you can see that there are some obvious parallels. We sense the pressure to conform to cultural values and practices that are contrary to God's heart, which compromise the church's witness and faithfulness to the gospel, and which dishonor God and defy His instruction. We know what it means to live in circumstances that reveal that we are, as Peter refers to Christians, sojourners and exiles in this world, and which bring the burden of that identity to bear when we feel the weight of it. We realize that there will be a a cost for holding the line, for clinging to Christ and submitting to His Word. For the Corinthians, that cost came as a loss of economic opportunity, 
social standing or political access. And isn't that exactly what we fear to lose if we live with utter devotion to Christ? That being committed to what Scripture says about gender, about sexuality, about marriage and divorce, or about abortion, or the historicity of Jesus' resurrection, or any of a number of other controversial issues will come at a cost? We live in a situation which isn't exactly the same as first century Corinth. But the gap between us and them isn't that big either. And this passage serves as a reminder to us about how we ought to think about living in such circumstances. As we conclude this morning in the few minutes that we have left, there are three things I think we need to take away from our study of this passage. First, that many of us need the loving rebuke that we read here. Secondly, that many of us need the loving reminder that not every part of the culture around us is wicked. And thirdly, that all of us need the loving reminder that we do not earn God's love for us. Let's look at each of these just really briefly. First, many of us need the loving rebuke that is contained in these words, to touch no unclean thing, to recognize that there are ways in which we have yoked ourselves to things that dishonor Christ, tempted by the promises of prosperity or social advantage or political gain or fleeting joy. Paul feared where things were headed in Corinth, and as history would prove within just 40 years, his fears were ultimately justified. The pressure on the Corinthian Christians to cede just a little ground here and a little ground there was immense, just like it is for us. In our context, Christians are often condemned as backward-thinking, unenlightened, puritanical buzzkills who need to get with the times. So we need this word from 2 Corinthians, the reminder that we are the temple of the living God and that the temple of the living God will not share, will not share space with idols, that there is no agreement between God's temple and idols. We are called to be the discreet church, not discreet, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T, as in silent and unnoticed, but discreet, D-I-S-C-R-E-T-E, as in distinct and set apart from the world around us. Our calling is to honor Christ by living in a way that testifies to the supremely satisfying gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So many of us need this instruction and the rebuke that is here from 2 Corinthians 6, just like its first readers did. Secondly, many of the rest of us, many others of us, need to be reminded that not all of culture is wicked. It's worth noting here that Paul does not condemn the city of Corinth as a whole. He does not tell the Corinthians, the Christians there, to move away and form their own communities where they would not be bothered by Corinthian culture. Instead, he instructs the Corinthians to live in a way that acknowledges that there are some things in Corinth that are ungodly, which must be avoided, and that there are other things that Christians there can joyfully participate in. And the same thing is true in Metro West. We should not write off this place as a lost cause. We should not assume that everything our culture produces is wicked. We must be discerning and wise, recognizing that there are some things that are non-negotiable. That means we need to know our Bibles. We need to learn how to exegete the culture around us through the promises of God which have been kept in Christ, so that we will recognize and delight in all the ways that the culture around us reveals and points us toward God's glory and the hope of the gospel. 
Lastly, all of us need the reminder that we are not called to earn God's kindness, but to live as recipients of His kindness. We must preach the gospel to ourselves daily. We must preach the gospel to one another daily. We must remember that before we ever had the thought to turn toward God in faith, He was drawing us in mercy. That His favor preceded our faith. That His love was poured out for us while we were yet His enemies. So that we do not obey His word in a vain attempt to gain His approval, but instead as a joyful opportunity to worship Him with our lives, with our redeemed lives. We are the, dis- the discreet church, distinct in the world, set apart for the glory of God. People who stand out because we do not conform to every whim and passing notion of the world around us or what it celebrates but who carefully and honestly search to discern how our lives might reflect the overwhelming, life-giving, promise-keeping gospel of our Savior and King. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider these things this morning, we do so with Your promises in mind and the hope of the gospel in our hearts It is your love for us that gives us life, the blood of your Son that redeems us from guilt, and your Spirit that is at work in us, your living temple, that both produces holiness in our lives and testifies to your glory in the world. We are your people, and you are our God, and we seek to live in such a way that reveals that identity. Give us the strength and conviction to stand for what is good and true even if doing so is costly. For our good and for your glory, we ask these things. And we pray in the name of your Son. Amen.